Hello and welcome to Room Escape Divas, your podcast on everything escape room. This week I am joined once again by Dr. Scott Nicholson, who is here to talk about his latest project, Escape If. Woo! Welcome, Hooray. Scott. Hey, thank you. <laughs> That's great to uh, great to hear your voice and be on the podcast again. Yeah. So for those who are just tuning in who have never uh, heard uh, Scott on our podcast before, he is a a frequent a I guess I was going to say frequent flyer, which feels weird to say, but oh uh, well. <laughs> <laughs> he has been on here before uh, to talk about his various projects. So. Scott, just for the sake of, you know, letting new listeners know, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, what you do, and and how you got into this crazy world? Sure. So uh, I'm Scott Nicholson. I am a professor of game design at Wilfrid Laurier University over on their Brantford campus in Brantford, Ontario. Uh, I've got a long history of talking about games in social media. If you have gray in your hair and have been working with tabletop, you might know that I did a series called Board Games with Scott, which was the first series about board games on YouTube from 2005 to 2010. Uh, so that was interesting and ended up taking me to MIT for a year. And that was important. I'll talk about why later. Um, mm-hmm. I first stumbled across escape rooms in Singapore in 2015. I was over there for uh, teaching some classes on games and libraries. um, And I saw these escape rooms in the shopping malls. And I talked to the folks at the malls and said, what are these? And and they said, oh, and they explained briefly. Now, I have a long history with LARPing. Uh, My first published game was Cthulhu Live. So I've been a LARP creator and a LARP player for decades. My first encounter with escape rooms, I was in Singapore. Back in 2015, I was teaching some classes for the government on games and libraries and was wandering through one of the many shopping malls they have there and saw these escape rooms in shopping malls. I'd never heard of them. And so I asked the folks what they were about and learned, but I was by myself and they wouldn't let me play them by myself. So at the conference, I talked about, hey, these escape rooms, what's that? And the librarians got very excited and said, oh, we're (laughs) going to take you to one. So we went to Chinatown to an escape room. And looking back on it, it was an awful escape room. Uh, (laughs) It was uh, five boxes, and each box had a padlock on it. Um, And around the room were posters. And so you would look at a poster with a puzzle that would then turn into a numerical answer that you would then open the lockbox. And lockbox would give you a card that had a little more information that you could pair up with another poster. Uh, I remember there was a single physical puzzle in the room that you had to use a a string and a magnet to get something out of a display case. Mm -hmm. And that was the room, was five (laughs) lockboxes. But that said, I know we talk about quality of rooms and, and what it does. Well, that was still enough for me because I've been LARPing for drug. decades. Yeah, like, you yeah. know, there's something here. And so uh, on my way home, I, I did some research and I saw that no one had ever done, was talking about this. So as an academic, one of the things you, you know, there's, there's the four ways to get known as an academic. Um, <laughs> you can do something first, you can do something best, you can do something last, or you can do something worst. And so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you went for the worst one, I'm guessing, I went for right? worst, yes. So yeah, yeah. Um, uh, while I was recovering from jet lag from my Singapore trip, I started to collect and make a database of every escape room I could find on the internet. Um, mm. And that was, there were 400 of them that I could tell were escape rooms. Not all of them were English language, I, but if, it, if I could figure out it was an escape room, I added it to yeah. the spreadsheet, wrote them all with a survey, and got about a 50% response rate. 
Um, nice. Which is, if you've ever done survey resource, getting a a fifty percent response rate in a, a just over the transom survey sent by email is crazy high uh, for for that kind of a thing. People might have been like, "Oh, they know about us." <laughs> what was yeah. interesting, a, a number of people responded to me and said, "You know, I would normally not answer these questions, but I know you from Board Games with Scott." I have some trust for you, trust in you, so I will tell you about my escape room. So that created the first big escape room survey back in 2016, and got me involved in in the industry. Um, Red Bull reached out to me through my connections that I'd made at MIT and asked if I wanted to be involved in creating the games for the Red Bull Escape Room World Championships. So I led a team of my students, and we did that in 2017 and, and 2019. Um, also, yeah. as part of this process, I started the Escape Room Enthusiasts Facebook group because I knew it was always good to start community because that makes it really – I did it so as a researcher, I'd have a way to reach out to a large group of people. Little did I know how large that group of people would get. And yeah. <laughs> so there's over 20,000 members of that group. all the wonderful entries into <laughs> to the Escape Room Enthusiast group. Yes, yes. Uh, and those of you who have never had the joy of managing a large Facebook group, um, <laughs> it draws a lot of – spam accounts. That's really every day. There's 30 to 50 uh, people who want to participate in the group and uh, 90% of them are spam. So we are manually taking those out. And then when someone gets their post deleted and gets upset, I have to explain, well, we're dealing with like this flood of junk um, and your post kind of looked like junk mail. So we threw it away. It's an art. Uh, yeah, it's an art to to figure out how not to sound like a bot. Yeah. <laughs> I sent my friend a link, and she's like, "Is this you? Are you sure it's you?" <laughs> the way I worded it, it was like, "This is amazing," and then just posted a link, and I'm like, "Well, that yeah, that was kind of dumb of me." <laughs> well, especially if it's someone you hadn't heard from in a while, then you get this post out of the blue. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah, so you have your hands in a lot of escape room pies, and that is amazing. But as you said, you're um, primarily an academic, and you teach at the university. In fact, you teach an escape room course. Right, yeah, I've taught this class now um, three times, four times, Yeah, um, where the students spend the semester making an, making an escape room. This last time, because of the pandemic, we were online, so I had to make um, online escape rooms. They were able to use whatever platform they wanted to to make their games. And nice. it was interesting to let them be creative. Um, we had a number of them that got excited about using Minecraft to create their rooms. Yeah, I remember that. The I uh, those were those were fun. Those were a lot of fun to see. <laughs> it, and I found that this class actually worked better having the online games than the face to face games because the students uh, there was less resource need for them to create their games. So right. if, if they're making it out of cardboard and, and in the physical space, well, there's, the student budget doesn't go very far. But if they're making it in Minecraft, they can make Their imaginations F. can go wild. Yeah, yeah. so that I found that the, the scope of the games that were created were much broader. They still had all the same problems with, okay, the first time the puzzles are too hard, and now we need to make sure that they will <laughs> be completed in time. And, you know, all of the standard issue things that you have when you're helping people learn how to make escape rooms. But we got away from that hassle of having to figure out how to build the thing they wanted to build uh, because they could do it in... And some students just used still images and more of a role-playing type uh, angle on their escape room um, because the industry has given us a lot of examples of how to do escape rooms online. So we were able to use that in the class. Oh, excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And did you find that 
there was a difference in game hosting for a digital room versus game hosting for a, a the in-person ones. I, I experienced it from both sides because I went to your, your in-person uh, ones and I went to the, the digital ones as well. And it was interesting seeing how kind of like, I don't know how the interactions changed, like because it was just over a voice chat, I felt like there was almost more of a comfort level there. Um, and I'm not sure. How did you feel about that? Well, the biggest difference uh, in that between the two in escape rooms that are in person, generally the game master is not visible. They are right. there. You create the situation, you create the environment, you get out of the way and you let the players explore. So when you played those games in person, you may have never had any engagement at all with any of the students who were, who were running the game. Yeah. You would yeah. only have engagements with the students if they written an actor into the game and you had engagements with the actor uh, yeah. in an online escape room. Um, at the level my students were creating them. So my students were not doing uh, fancy programmed, pre-programmed and coded escape games. Uh, we use things like Google Draw because the yeah. nice thing about Google Draw is that a student as a game master could have the Google Draw picture up. The players were working with a puzzle or a challenge and the students could then change like a light by making it turn on or could actually help the players along by moving pieces into place, the players wouldn't know the game master was doing it because everyone was moving things at the same time. So Google Draw worked really well for a more manual experience. But because of the nature of the games, you had to have the student as a host, an active host. So in each game, you did get to know the students who created it because they were an active host. They were much more active game masters. So I'd say that's the difference, um, is that if you haven't made a fully automated online room, you're more involved as a host or a or the person you're telling what to do. And in a face-to-face -face room, many times there is not a person. You may never see an actor and the game master is staying out of it on purpose. That's a very good point. Like, yeah, like you almost have to be more involved in a digital, you do have to be more involved in a digital escape. Uh, right, unless of... you've programmed everything to where it's, at that point, it's a computer game. It's a, it's, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> at that point it's I like, play a video game. Yeah. Right. Well, and that's it is, is do you want to pay $30 a person to go and play yeah. a video game that you can play one time for an hour? And that's where I think yeah. escape rooms, online escape rooms do need to offer that actor, that human connection, because they do need to offer something beyond what you could get by, you know, getting a regular computer game. Completely agree. Cause there, there's something thrilling about, having unlike a video game like i'm like what can an escape room offer that a video game can't is is often a question i ask myself and one of it is that that live feedback that live interaction it's not a dialogue tree i'm choosing from it's like a person that i'm talking to which is which is thrilling and something that video games can't often offer um great so what we're here to talk about today is is your latest project so it's called Escape If, and I saw you posting about it. I'm like, that seems cool. Um, and I know that you you are a big advocate of using gaming in general, not just escape games, but with a lot of gaming to be a part of the process of education. And I'm a big, I'm also a big proponent of that. But why don't you tell us a little bit about Escape If and how that came about? Okay, so. I have been involved in creating game-based learning for, for decades now. That's one of mm -hmm. the things that's most important to me. 
And in fact, with escape rooms, we've really moved at our at the university at Laurier. We are um, moving into uh, focusing on uh, pro-social games and mm-hmm. pro-social organizations. So we're partnering more with museums and things like that. So we made a, we've made a game for a dinosaur museum. We made a game for an art museum. Uh, so making escape games for for learning environments. I wrote a book with uh, Liz Cable. We had a book come out uh, last year on puzzle-based learning for classrooms, yeah. where we created uh, uh, the different ways for teachers to use escape games in their classrooms. So escape rooms don't always work so well in a classroom setting. Right. Um, and uh, what's that book called again? So the book's called Unlocking the Potential of Puzzle-Based Learning, Designing Escape Rooms and Games for the Classroom. Liz is a educator from the UK. She teaches in classrooms. And so working with her was really good to help me cement what I knew about working with nonprofit organizations in, into how does that work in a classroom. And so the, the point of this book, we created several different, we called them game shapes, which was how to take the concept of an escape room, but to turn it into another game that would function better in, say, a classroom of 30 people. So whether right. that be like a puzzle hunt is uh, one game shape. Um, one of my favorite is the serial story. So each day you do a 10 minute, a single puzzle, that's 10 minutes that advances the story a little bit. And you do that every day for some time. What's nice about that, it doesn't require the teacher to do so much preparation at once. Um, it lets you make changes as the game goes along, because then if you do something and the students say, oh, what'd it be, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? And all of a sudden you can make it happen. That's the because you have time to go and redevelop it. It also creates a... A, a unit that's nice for students to make because mm-hmm. you can have students make a single puzzle based 10 minute game now that they've tried some of them. So it opens up the creation possibilities. So we wrote this book and I was presenting this book at uh, conferences. And at the end of a conference, uh, one person came up to me and said, well, you know, we're worth a group called the M Education Alliance. And what this is, it's an alliance of nonprofits and NGOs around the world that focuses on bringing education tools to low resource classrooms. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, you've presented all of these different game shapes, but the problem is all of them require resources. Even a puzzle hunt requires significant amounts of paper, of disposable paper. And a lot of the classrooms that we're working with have, um, they don't have that. They have found objects, they have a blackboard, And that's about it. There's no other technology to work with. Mm. Could we do an escape room in these spaces? That was the challenge to me. It said, so so the book took us from escape rooms and lowered the resource barrier so the teachers could still do puzzle boxes or puzzle hunts, Mm -hmm. things like that. But could we go further? I'm lowering the barricades to playing escape games. And that's Mm. what I decided. I've had a sabbatical over the last year. And on Mm. a sabbatical, you get to take on some big, hard project. And so I said, you know, I'm going to try this for my sabbatical. So I partnered up and I've been working with the M Education Alliance. We've been working with uh, groups like Save the Children and World Bank, uh, working primarily at this point in uh, classrooms in Africa. Uh, Rwanda is our current, uh, the big partner we're working with. And we're focused on math games because this group works on, on a project called Math Power. Mm-hmm. So they presented me with the, uh, a framework of, of global learning outcomes to say, well, can you figure out how to work with these global learning outcomes and bring that into escape rooms? So the challenge was, all right, how do I make an escape room that doesn't require a lot of resources? And resources, there's two kinds of resources that I've, I've realized, and one is financial resources. Right. So that's boxes and locks. And the problem with the boxes and locks is that's a lot of stuff to have. 
even lots of paper, disposable paper in a place where they don't have a lot of disposable paper. That's a lot of stuff to have. So what else could we use? And then I also realized the other resource is the teacher's time. Teachers are really hard pressed and they don't have a lot of time to do stuff. So my goal was, can I both create game styles that don't require a lot of teacher's time? And we were doing that already with like apps and and you bring in a mobile game, a digital game, the teacher just throws the kids in front of the screen and they don't have time, but that still requires infrastructure. But can we make something that, that tackles both? And I thought too, so I've, I'm a grizzled and gray gamer. And I thought to my history of gaming types, and I thought, you know, there are some models out there. And the first model that I looked at was Escape This Podcast. Mm-hmm. I was just about to say, like, when that's I, where yeah, that's what yeah. that was where the aha started. That was why I said, yes, I can do that because Escape yeah. This Podcast is a podcast where they do oral escape rooms. Yeah, and that I said, okay, that would be a starting point for inspiration. Is could we do? We can do oral escape rooms. At yeah. that and so and these classrooms. Um, many times the cultures in which they are embedded are storytelling cultures. Mm-hmm. These are oral oral history cultures. So a, a storytelling-based game might work quite well in these spaces. So that was my first, my first point of inspiration. Uh, the second point of inspiration was something called Parsley Games. Now, Parsley Games are a, uh, an, an analog reimagining of the old interactive fiction games. So we'll start with interactive fiction games. So right. interactive fiction games like Zork and things like this were computer games where the computer would describe what you saw. There's a mailbox here. There's a fishing pole here. What would you like to do? And the player could type open mailbox. Mm-hmm. And it would go back. It was text-based adventures, which led into graphical adventures, which led into a lot of gaming styles that we have today. But at that point, interactive fiction games were these text-based adventures. Parsley Games takes that concept and gives uh, one person plays the computer, the parser. And so if we were playing a Parsley game, I would have a script in front of me that would tell me what to read and then have different options if the players ask. So I would say, you see a mailbox here. You see a fishing pole here. What do you want to do? And when you run a Parsley game with a big group of people, you point to the first person and they get Mm. to give one command. Uh, Then you say what happens and then you point to the next person. They give a command. So it's kind of like playing an interactive fiction game but you're doing it in a physical environment with a big group of people. So I've run Parsley games in my classes for years in my Gaming 101 to show the students what interactive fiction is like, how you can break the mold of not being needing to be in front of a computer to do these kind of games. Mm-hmm. So that was my, an, another touch point was the Parsley games script, which allowed me to run a Parsley game very fast. I could just follow a script, read the first paragraph. If they choose to go north, go to paragraph seven. If they choose to go west, go to paragraph eight. Uh, sort of like an old choose your own adventure book. And that's another <laughs> yeah. touch point here. Are these yep. choose your own adventure books? So, so these were the touch points where I started, where I knew that we could do a storytelling game orally without a lot of resources. And so Parsley Games, the way it works is just like the old interactive fiction games. There's a series of verbs that you can use. Look, mm-hmm. take, move, and then you have places and you have objects. Now, in order to make this simpler for teachers and simpler for the players, the thing about the Parsley games is the frustration as part of the fun, like the interactive fiction yeah. games, trying to guess what to do. But if you're pursuing specific learning outcomes in a classroom, let's say you're pursuing math outcomes, yeah. trying to guess which way to move is not that much fun. Right. If there's like stakes involved, for instance, like, I'll go to the left. It's like, well, you died there. Yeah. And it's that, it's that healthy, <laughs> yeah. the learning outcomes. So 
my, that was one yeah. of my design goals is say, we need to reduce the moments in the game that aren't really related to learning outcomes and are just, uh, uh, you would used to work through these by making a map, for example. Why didn't want mm-hmm. students have to make a map? You know, So that's part of the idea is that the teacher actually will, using the chalkboard becomes the place where you record state. So the chalkboard would have a list of the verbs. So here's the verbs that a student could choose from, look, move, take. It would have stuff, objects, what do you have? The objects are written down. Places are listed out. So you can just say, go to the jungle because jungle's mm-hmm. listed. It's not this move west, move west, mm-hmm. move north. We don't want to, that, that Parsley Games does that, but that isn't what we want to do here. So right. the board would track people, places, objects, and actions. And right. then the middle of the board would be a drawing of whatever the players were seeing at the time when that mattered. So- okay. Uh, I've been working with a story world of a dinosaur safari because that gives me a lot of affordances. And so in this case, you might walk into the dinosaur pen and you've got, you draw rocks and you draw where the dinosaurs are. Mm -hmm. Then you ask the students what you want to do. So that's where escape if, and so the term escape if escape, because it's inspired by escape room design concepts and if for interactive fiction. And so that's where the escape if concept came from. So that yeah. was the first thing I designed back in the fall. I designed this system. What are the verbs? I designed, wrote the first script. And I got that out to teachers. And I found that it was too challenging. Oh, uh, okay. Most teachers who weren't gamers. So this is a case where when mm. you play test games, getting outside of our circles. For someone that's a gamer, it was fine. For someone that had experience running tabletop role-playing games, it was easy. Um, the escape this podcast type setup, simple yeah. to run if you are a gamer, but if you've never done anything like this before, which is what I was finding with teachers, right? they were really struggled with knowing how to deal with improv improvisation, vast improv. Right. Because that's yeah. what you have to do. If you're, if I provide the situation, you let someone say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take the stick and hit myself with it. Well, it, unless you've written that up, the teacher then doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And if you have an arrow in your classroom, that makes it even worse. And you always have an arrow in your classroom. You always always... have an arrow in your classroom with kids. Yeah. (laughs) And given that you're giving each student, and as I've run Parsley Games in the classrooms, I have found there will be certain troll students who will do whatever they can to disrupt the game when it comes to their turn and they will try to die. And they, so... So that was the original escape if that I ran in the fall is, is I set it up like a Parsley game, uh, like an escape this podcast game. And it, it, it didn't succeed. And it didn't succeed right. because the when I ran it, it was fine. But when a teacher ran it without gaming experience, it struggled. So I had to really step back. And this is at the point in game design where sometimes you have to uh, you know kill your darlings. You have to throw yeah. away elements that were really important to you. But I said, okay, how do I boil this down to just the most important thing? And so that's what I created. So I created a new system. So now I have escape if and escape if advanced. So what we just talked about is Escape If Advanced. It's documented, that's out there and available for people to explore. But Escape If now is two types of things, choices and challenges. Mm. So I've boiled it all down to a much more like a choose your own adventure story. So the teacher reads some text and then they offer a choice. You can do X, Y, and Z. Those are your three choices. Those are your two choices. Now, if the choice is not important to the learning outcomes, then my recommendation is the teacher presents the choice and the class votes on what to do. And then the teacher moves on. So for example, uh, in one game, it's the weather is going to be hot. 
You could wear protective clothing, but that will be warm and slow you down. You could wear cooler clothing, but you might run into situations where it's more dangerous because you're not being going to be protected by the thorns that are going to be in the brambles. What do you want to do? So if the learning outcome of the, the class is mathematics, that's not that important. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I would say we just go to straight to a vote because teachers also have limited time. We, right. we really have one class to run these games in. So if it's something that's not important, it's just a vote and the teacher moves on and may make a note on the board about what kind of clothes you're wearing because that'll make a difference later on in mm-hmm. the game. And there will also then be times where there is a challenge that is more important to the narrative that matters more. At that point, you break the class up into small groups and say, okay, I'm going to give you one minute to talk in your small groups. After you talk, you have everyone in the class close their eyes so we don't have peer pressure in voting. Mm-hmm. And everyone votes for what they want. So the idea is that that the, the people are still making a decision, but they've talked about the decision. So that's how we do choices. And then challenges are where you deal like in the math games, uh, what perimeter fence do we need to calcu- to capture these many dinosaurs? What's the perimeter of that fencing? And that's yeah. where you get into the math part of it for a math game. And the same idea, you put the students in small groups, you have them work out the problem together, you then get the answer from them. If there's different answers, you have the different groups talk about how they got to their answers so that the students can figure out and come to consensus as to what the right answer is. So that's basic, the, the Escape F basic game now. And, and I've found that now we've got four games that have been developed. I developed the first one by myself as this test and simplified it. I then partnered with an educator from the US, then an educator from Canada. And now the third one is an educator from Rwanda to mm, make oh, the games that are out there right now. And that's so, so where Escape If sits, it's all in the Creative Commons. It's all available for free for anyone that wants to explore it at escapeif.com. And so the games are for different grade levels. So one is uh, addition and subtraction. Uh, one right. is perimeter. Uh, one is multiplication of fractions. So that one's feeding the dinosaurs, different portions of foods. Mm. Um, the perimeter is fencing the dinosaurs. The addition and subtraction of numbers and time is dealing with classrooms coming in on buses and you've got to send them out on tours and plan how long the tours can be out. Oh, wow. So that's got, you know, we've got four stops and there's 30 minutes between here and an hour 30 and what, how long will it take if they see these? So that's, that's for grades two to four. I've got each grade level covered with a game. And the most complex one is uh, a, 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 a mean, median and mode and outliers game. So in oh. that one, it's actually, I've actually brought in data mining where oh. you, you don't know it's data mining, but the idea is that uh, our numbers are down. We need to figure out where, why our numbers are down. So do you want to look at different age groups? Do you want to look at days of the week or do you want to look oh. at attractions? Based on what they say, then the teacher writes down the new data. All right. So this is the breakdown by days. Now, do you want to look at age groups or attractions? And so it is, it's a data mining activity done through an interactive fiction model <laughs> and the idea is that, that you're finding the outlier. And when you get down to that point of looking at the data, it's like, oh, okay, it's the senior citizens are not buying tickets to this location at noon. What's going on there? And then that takes you to the next part. I, I have to say the forensic accountant in me is getting a little bit too excited about that last one. <laughs> well, so that's like for, finding, for right? uh, ninth and 10th graders. So it's yeah, for uh, yeah. it's for students that have already done media, media, and mode. And the yeah. game is really focused on the effect of outliers on mean, median, and mode. Or when would you use the mode? When would you use the mean? Um, mm-hmm. I always try to have an optional physical activity in each game because part of what makes escape rooms exciting is it is doing something physical. But yeah. I, again, I have to think that we can only use found objects. 
So for example, in the one we just talked about with the, uh, the seniors lunchtime, there's not many tickets being bought. Well, you go to that site and what you see is the dinosaurs are being fed right by the ramp, the access ramp to buy the ticket booth and they're pooping all over the place. Oh, well then. And so the seniors can't get up to buy tickets because of all the poop on the ramp. (laughs) So you then do research to figure out where could you feed the dinosaurs So Mm -hmm. that not all the dinosaurs went there, but not too few dinosaurs went there. So you have to collect poop. And so the- Kids must love that. Well, of course. And so so ahead of time, the teacher hides 55, it's like find 55 things to represent poop. They could be rocks, whatever. You're going to hide them around the classroom in one of these eight sections. Mm-hmm. And and then the t- there's a big searching activity to go and collect your data. And then now now you've got data of section and number of poops. And so you can figure out, well, which sections are in the middle. We don't want sections that not a lot of dinosaurs like, but we right. don't want sections that all the dinosaurs like. So we want to put the food in the middle section. So that's getting at, well, is that mean, median, or mode, et cetera. So that's where this project sits right now is I have a basic and advanced version there's a interactive uh, twine game to help people experience it because I found that teachers, when given a script, they didn't necessarily uh, take to it without mm-hmm. understanding what was going on. So I said, All right, I need to make something that's really interactive, um, but make it clear that the goal of this is not a digital game. The goal of this is, and that's what I found when teachers run it, it's there's something about the magic of making the game world come to life. And that's part of the power of this because there's nothing that's fixed like in a computer program or like a board game or a card game that the teacher has all the ability to make changes to the script, even as the game is running. If dinosaurs aren't good for the kids, they could use robots. They could use real animals. If poop is inappropriate, they could use food masks. But, you know, poop is always appropriate. Poop is always appropriate, yeah. So that's that's another – so my goals then with the project have been, one, make it easy for a teacher to start running because you could just take the script and read paragraph one. And then it says if they choose this, go here. If they choose that, go there. Two – not have any required resources other than found objects. So you're not Mm -hmm. having to get paper or photocopies. It's all done with that chalkboard. And then three, to give the teachers the ability to make changes in the game before it runs, as it's running. Um, It it makes it very easy to make. So with the the addition game uh, for, and this is part of the the global proficiency framework I've been working with, lays out what grade level can do what kind of math. Mm-hmm. So for second graders, they can add and subtract numbers up to 100. Fourth graders can add and subtract numbers up to 1,000. Right. So I made one puzzle where I said, if you're working with second graders, remove the ones digit from every number in the puzzle mm-hmm. and have the goal be 100. Yeah. If you're working with fourth graders, leave it as it is with the goal being 1,000. Right. It's super easy to do that. And that's the other t- the, the nice thing about Escape If is that teachers can make those changes. It also leads it to where students can make these games. And that's the other thing I've written and put out there is a guide to making games. And actually, if you're looking to make escape rooms, you might find that guide in Escape If that's out there on how to make Escape If games useful because it takes you through the same process that I use to make escape games. But my goal, the, the future of the project is to get more games made and begin to make a, a larger repository of games that are created both by teachers and by students. I'm working with the M Education Alliance. They're going to host this repository. Uh, our first the project we want to do in the next couple months is to partner with a country to work with teachers and students in that country. And for me to lead a game jam over a couple days where the teachers work with the students to make Escape If games. Oh, cool. 
and then get all of those uploaded because that's going to help bring in more cultural viewpoints. That's going to help bring in more languages to the project because there's no barrier to creation. You don't have to learn a computer program. You don't have to create stuff out of paper or cardboard. It's just writing words. It's just writing a script. Um, There's no, and so that's been my realization over the last year is that we've put up so many barriers to play. Yeah. And my goal with this project is lower the barriers, make it so more people can play. And so it's it's become kind of this open source uh, collaborative effort now, like, or it will be, that's the goal where, yeah, a, a teacher could go on and find something more, spe- either like find or create something more specific to their culture uh, that, you know, or more specific to their area or to their students and that kind of thing. And, and there'll be a lot more, choice as things go along. Uh, that That's the hope, I'm guessing. Right. And that people can upload these scripts. The M Education yeah. Alliance is going to be hosting this repository. They already have this network of schools around the world. So yeah. where we're now looking to go in the next year is to get funding. And by the way, if you're out there and you're a funder, and this sounds like something you'd like to fund, rolling this out to more countries, we're currently yeah. seeking that funding to be able to fund my students at Laurier to partner with teachers around the world to help them make these games. Cause it is hard to make a game. It is, it's game design. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to tell me that. <laughs> now the reality is the games are, are embedded word problems is really what they are. It's a word problem with more context. My goal on, on doing this is to cr- give students a better real world context of what they're learning to help them see how could, why would I ever care what an outlier does? You know, what mm-hmm. would perimeter ever do for me? And that's part of a key part of the, every game is having time for reflection because reflection is where you actually cement the learning, having time for the students to say, all right, we've explored perimeter. And in this game, you use the perimeter to figure out how much fencing to order to keep in these dinosaurs. But what other careers out there right now would use perimeter? Who would use this and get the students thinking about careers and real world implications. And so these games are best used either before you start a topic as an introduction to the concept and a real world embedding of that concept, or after you've covered the topic as a review activity and a place for the students to tie in and realize, oh, okay, we've just learned this thing. Here's yeah. how it's actually useful in the real world. Because how we that's, can actually apply the knowledge. and That's what's missing in yeah. a lot of classroom education is that the students don't come out knowing why did we learn that? And what when <laughs> would I ever use that? Why do we care what's that? in an area? I don't yeah. understand. When, when, when would I ever use air, need to know what the area of something is? And yeah. and by having them think about okay, and that's why we picked the dinosaur safari story world for all the games, uh, because it gives a lot of different uh, affordances to make math situations. There's you know we've had feeding, we've had customers, we've had setting up tours. You know we've had there's and we can keep going. So with uh, if there isn't a real world connection between the learning outcome, if you, if, if I ask the teacher, when would you use this in the real world? And they say, well, I don't know. I would mm-hmm. say this isn't the right game style to use. Right. Right. Because if there isn't a real world connection, then what you have are akin to the escape rooms that were a series of puzzles without a narrative. Yes. Mm-hmm. You could still do the puzzles, but without that connection to something in the real world, that, that's what the power of this is. So my advice on that would be, well, don't use this resource for that learning outcome. Let's, yeah. This resource is best used when you can tie what they're learning in the class to something in the real world. 
couple of things. So I just wanted to note, uh, you mentioned Twine earlier. So just for those who don't know what Twine is, uh, it is if you've ever wanted to pursue interactive fiction, it's a great tool to build out uh, a narrative. It, it's basically like a branching narrative software almost uh, where you can put in a situation and then put in links to the choices that you have. Uh, so do check that out. And what I enjoyed about your, Scott, your sample when you mentioned like it, you know you wanted to stress it's not a digital game but uh you do have a lovely little um youtube video on each one uh that and you're wearing a lovely safari hat uh, <laughs> and, uh but it's good because it, it shows you in the real world like how it would work out in the real world versus just reading it on a screen and and that i think helps cement like how a teacher might uh present it to their classroom as well yeah, we we as gamers, we forget how many barriers we have in the way to learn how to play and run our games. Um, yeah. Escape rooms have been a really neat opportunity to uh, for anyone to play a game because you don't have to learn how to use a controller. You don't have to learn how to navigate menus. You do still have to learn how to deal with a directional lock and, and some of the other things. Um, but trying to even say, identify those barriers and say, how do we lower those barriers to make this something that teachers and kids in different cultures who don't mm -hmm. have access to a lot of resources could still play. I mean, the other interesting challenge that's come up over the year is the name. And this was back in when Escape Room started, I was pushing to say we should not call them escape rooms because there's negative implications of right. that concept of escape. Well, yeah. now we're working with refugee populations. We're working uh, with populations where you say, oh, you want to play a game about escaping? It's like, like, well, yeah, maybe that's why? not so great. So <laughs> yeah. um, when uh, the way we've actually been presenting it now is that it is a storytelling game system where you escape into another world. Oh, that's and a good so, that's a good spin on it. Yeah, yeah, and that's what that is what you're doing. You're escaping into another space, and so yeah. that's that escape. If um, so, you know, what would you do if you could escape into another space? And so that's how I've oh. I've, I've actually, if you look at the uh, the organization I'm working with, we don't even talk about escape rooms as part of it. It's it's instead it's all talking about this storytelling, yeah, and interactive storytelling. So this year has been interesting working way outside of the spaces I have been where escape room concepts are embedded with people who like escape rooms and everyone likes escape rooms, moving to people that have never even heard of an escape room. Yeah. And the whole concept of we're going to lock you up in a space and you have to get out is not a concept you want to be playing with. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a, that's all right. And so how do we still keep those concepts alive? So it's been, it, it, it's been eye opening, and it's really forced me to look at, um, there's, there's right now. There's some debate around a board game that has been republished and is being republished with an extremely expensive deluxe version. Mm, mm -hmm. And this argument of saying, "Hey, you know, why are you gatekeeping this game by making only this super deluxe version? It's been out of print for a decade. There's a lot of people that would like to have access to it, but are not going to be able to pay hundreds of dollars." for this fancified version that doesn't really add anything to the gameplay. And it's really made that sort of stuff uh, maybe more sensitive to, yeah, how, how do we remove the barriers to this? And that's been my goal is that this be something that's available uh, through the Creative Commons. Now, not everyone that makes a game will put it in the Creative Commons, but that's my encouragement is that we have this repository. 
that can build up. And I'm really excited to see what we see out of students in different cultures. Yeah, that'd be fun. By, by making it easier to, to tell your stories, it's going to create that opportunity to access games. And we've seen some of that with online escape rooms where you could play games from China, play games from Amsterdam, play games from other countries and learn a little bit about their culture. Um, and, but this even lowers that barrier further to enable that storytelling to happen across different cultures. And across, uh, yeah, and across different, um, certainly like different parts of those cultures as as well. And so have you found, when? how do you test something? Like you, you mentioned testing the advanced version at first with the teachers. How's the response been um, with the newer version so far? How, how have uh, students been responding to it? The one of the interesting things that I've heard from every teacher that's tried it was the positive response to doing something not on a screen. So many of the classrooms where it's been tested are high resource classrooms where they have had screens and having something that's not on a screen that the teacher is bringing the world to life by just drawing on a chalkboard is interesting and engaging. And it's, I, I'm, I'm excited to hear that, that it's like people are responding to the fact that having a game which gets you working together, which you're talking, that's why I didn't want it to be a computer game. Because yeah. if it's a computer game, everyone's going to sit at their own computer, yeah. they're not going to engage, and they're going to work through the puzzles, and it's going to be no different than any other educational puzzle-based digital game that's out there. It's the same kind of concept. But this, by having it be that throughout the whole experience, you're in small groups, you're talking with those groups about the situation, you're voting, and the teacher has the ability to to change and adapt the game to the audience. It becomes a thing that is being brought to life in the classroom. It's not being created outside. It's being created right there in front of the students. And one teacher said, you know, the magic of me because when I first tested this, I had created all of the, the like the maps for the scenarios. I'd made them ahead of time and just uploaded them to the whiteboard. As compared to actually drawing it out in front of the class, the act of drawing it out in front of the class made such a difference to students' engagement because they were seeing the thing come to life in front of their eyes. It brings about more of the storytelling concepts that, you know, this this is happening, we're creating it. And it was interesting how moving into a lower, uh, a lower technology and just drawing mm-hmm. things on a chalkboard got more engagement uh, because we're so used to seeing stuff just appear on a screen and now we're actually making it appear. And there's like, it's almost like the live theater concept, you know, that yeah. oh, something yeah. could happen in when, when the game's being made live, stuff could happen that wouldn't happen if it were just all prepackaged. There's also that, like, as you say, the barrier to entry for creation. Like, I know that for myself, yeah, I don't have a lot of technological skills even, right? And it's it's one of those creating something on a computer seems far more daunting than, uh, than if I learned suddenly I could just make it in the classroom right there with everything around me uh, and still have it be engaging. That's a, a very freeing thought, right? And it'd be fun. It'll be fun to see what what's. I I, I agree with you. It'll be fun to see what stories the students come up with uh, eventually, right? Working with the teachers and and seeing and seeing how people tell story their stories uh, differently as well. Like I, I'm I'm curious to see how it'll evolve or how um, how they might adapt your story bases into their own thing. 
The uh, the other piece of this, and I'm not pushing this up front, but it is the kind of a, by the way, this just happened moment. So when kids make their own game and they've made a branching narrative, they've planned out a story, they've broken that story up into smaller bits and they've made the branching narrative through a series of go here, go there statements, you know, go Mm -hmm. to this paragraph. They've just learned how to program. That's true. You don't have to tell them that, but they have just, (laughs) if, if you were going to make a narrative-based computer game, Mm -hmm. this is what you have to do first. You don't start programming first. The first thing you have to do is write out your story and the script and the connections. This is step one. And step two through Twine is a very easy set. If you've written out the script Mm -hmm. with what connects to what, you're just copy and pasting away from having a functional Twine game that then you can share. So while I'm not presenting it as a digital game in classrooms, the Mm -hmm. pathway that it creates for students to quickly get from, oh, we came up with this branching narrative story to say, oh, here's Twine. Now you just copy each paragraph and make the arrows point to where they go and press play. You've just made something that you can share on the web. And that's, that's, I'm I'm excited about sort of the STEM angle of saying it's, while it doesn't sound scary when you're done, you've just learned the first things you have to do to make it. Because then at that point, if you want to make it a more complex digital game, you've built the good groundwork. And I see many people, when they start to learn a digital game making tool, they focus on the tool. It's like, oh, I can make this sprite move around. You know, I can make two things crash. And then they try to make a game from there as compared to, well, let's come up with the story and what's going on with that. And then build that good ground base work. Mm -hmm. Then the tool is just taking that base work and making that more accessible. I think it's really good to have the the physical aspect of it too like you say you you said that students responded well to the fact that they didn't they weren't using screens but they were interacting with each other and i always know that in classrooms for some reason physically doing an act to demonstrate something made it stick in my head so much more than than trying to study it on a piece of paper or even like listening to just a vague concept of of you know, perimeter, for instance, and, uh, and, and seeing that in action and being able to participate in it in action just helps those concepts stick more for me. And I'm sure that, um, I'm sure that that's still the case for, for a lot of educational type of experiences like this. Yeah. With perimeter, for example, the physical activity is you get, you get all the students up, you figure out if you've got an odd number of students that you join as the teacher. If you have an even number of students, you leave them as they are. You have them make a rectangle. So you have them hold hands, form a rectangle. So first, okay, what's a rectangle? Well, you need the same number of people here and there. So make a rectangle. All right. What's the perimeter of this? Show them how to figure out, just add, count around the room, the number of bodies, and that's going to be the perimeter. Then you say, now don't let go. We're going to make a new shape. Let's make a triangle. Now Mm -hmm. what's the perimeter? Now let's make, and, and it helps them visualize through physical action, how perimeter is calculated, how they can calculate the perimeter of any shape yep. by simply adding up all of the lengths of each of the, so it's like, okay, make a shape, make something, what's make the something. perimeter? And you're just yep. going to, and this is how you calculate the perimeter of anything. And having that, I've tried to make it so the physical activities are always optional because some yeah. classrooms won't be appropriate for doing a physical activity um, or you may not have the time for it. But I'm trying to, in the design, always have one physical activity because it gets the students up and moving, changes their 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 space yeah. a little bit, changes the energy of the room. Kids got to move. 
Gilroy's have to move. <laughs> my other evil, uh, evil overlord planning in all of this is bring us back to something we've talked about on previous issues of the podcast, and that is ask why. That is, mm-hmm. if you force people to write the narrative first, yeah. then make challenges that fit the narrative, yeah. you have already put into place them to be more successful in creating puzzles that make sense because you started with the story rather than starting with the puzzles. And that's the problem with many educational games. It reminds me of the the old what are they called the edutainment games? Edutainment, uh, yes. <laughs> back in, back in the day, and uh, when it, it was like the the task you were set to do tied nothing with the little world. Like I think there was a spelling game where you're like it's called Treasure Mountain. That's what it was, Treasure Mountain, <laughs> and you had to like you had to go up this mountain and find treasures. But like if you found a treasure, you couldn't open it until you had to solve the spelling problem. And I'm like, well, why, 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 <laughs> like, why won't I just find a key? Why don't I use a crowbar? Why? No, but like, why spelling? Uh, and I obviously wanted the treasure, so I did it. But it, like the spelling in itself connected nothing with, with what was going on in the game. And uh, so I always appreciate it when I see that now, when they can make that connection, like, yeah, why, why are we calculating this perimeter? Well, the dinosaurs have escaped. Um, of course, we got to figure out how how much like fencing to to bring to like you know uh, bring them in again. Of course, we have to figure out that kind of thing. So it's it's um, it's such a little thing, and I feel like people don't people assume that people don't care about it. But you notice when it's when it doesn't belong. I that's that tends to be what I tell people is they'll never. People never tell you when something works, but they will definitely notice when something doesn't uh, fit. <laughs> so you might think that they're not noticing, but it's more like you did a good job. And and uh, if you did a good job, they often won't mention anything. And that's that's probably for the best. Um, I, I, yeah. You know, that's the issue with uh, any sort of infrastructure. So mm-hmm. I'm a former librarian and an information infrastructure is good if people don't notice it. That's yeah. when, you know, it, like the sewer is good if you don't notice it. When yeah. you pay attention to the sewer, then it's Start all of a sudden something's about wrong. things. It's like, right. what's wrong with the sewer? <laughs> yeah. The other surprising uh, tool that I found as I was learning how to do this and working with all these new partners and, and was this global proficiency framework. So this is made by, it's, it's put up by UNESCO for both math and literacy. And the idea mm-hmm. is at each grade level, what are, so you can look at a grade level, you can look at a specific topic, and it breaks down um, what is sort of the base level of proficiency, what is mm-hmm. a strong level proficiency, and what is mastery of a proficiency. And that's been incredibly useful this whole time to help me in puzzle design. Because, mm-hmm. like with area, for example, I'm like, well, how do I make a puzzle interesting around perimeter and area? And looking at that global proficiency framework, when it talked about area, it said, well, for basic, that you can calculate the perimeter and an area of a set of rectangle or set of squares. And then the more advanced is that you could com- make a larger shape out of multiple smaller rectangles and calculate the perimeter of that. Right. And that was an aha. I'm like, oh, all right. That's what I do for my puzzle is I make that, in this case, some of the dinosaurs, each one required a two by three meter area of a pen, and you had six of them. All right, well, that's an interesting puzzle now because what are the different shapes 
that you could make for six dinosaurs if each one requires a two by three square meter meter area. And for each shape, then what's the perimeter? What's the area? Oh, look, the area is the same. Isn't that interesting? And the perimeter is different. And how then could you come up with a rule of thumb as to why, when the perimeter is smallest, when it would be most efficient? Mm -hmm. But all that was inspired by reading the global proficiency framework and having that breakdown of for this. So anytime you're doing a math thing, take a look at that framework because you might find here's because when you make puzzles, many times when you make a puzzle, you're going to have an introductory activity that helps players understand what's going on in the puzzle. That's a simple version. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to add a twist. You're going to add something a little more complex that might be what they actually do. Or midway through through doing the puzzle, they then come across the twist. And that makes it more interesting. And that framework is really useful for helping you figure out what that twist could be. How does it get more complex, but still maintain that connection to the original learning concept? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I have to, I'll have to remember that more. Um, the, if someone says, uh, <laughs> don't appreciate, people don't appreciate narrative. I'll just ask them, do you appreciate sewers? You should. <laughs> <laughs> Because the only time you know it's bad is when it stinks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I'll, I'll admit, yeah, like a, math is always a daunting thing. I think it's a it was a good thing to start with uh, because I feel like I I've heard the the story that like people think that automatically they're not good at math uh, because it's just this big daunting thing when in reality everybody's capable of it. It's just you know it, it's just this image that we have of like math is only meant for geniuses and uh and you know if if you have trouble with it to start well then ah obviously you're not a genius so i like the idea of these escape uh this like escape of starting with like math-based games to kind of make it a bit more accessible it's also one of the areas that's the least contextualized in our classroom learning if you think about how did you learn math in school what you picture are worksheets yeah, you know, with a yeah. whole wall of subtraction problems, you know, or something yeah. like that. Well, that yeah. doesn't help you know what, well, when would I use this in the real world? You know, percentages. When would I ever in the real world need to figure out a percentage of something? Well, you slap that into figuring out a tip or splitting mm-hmm. a bill at a restaurant, and all of a sudden now you have, oh, okay, this says this is when I'd use it. And that's the goal of these games is to give the kids that moment of, oh, okay, you know, while in the game they are calculating how much food do they need for different dinosaurs based mm-hmm. on recipes, it's like it's not a hard connection to say, well, it's kind of just like if you have a recipe for six, but you only have four, yeah. how do you use fractions and multiplication to so, figure out how much of everything you need? And the answer is, well, I just make it for six and I have leftovers. Okay, thank you, Errol. <laughs> <laughs> That that should be yeah. Thank you, Errol. Uh, that should be the that should be the absolutely be the adult version of Escape. If someone needs to make a you you're at a restaurant, you have to split the bill puzzle because that is the greatest puzzle of them all, in my opinion. Uh, that never true. And then it always comes all. to you, and it's like, gosh, I owe two hundred dollars for my Coke. <laughs> yeah, it's like somehow wait, yeah, because like okay, we did it. And you just owe, you know, fifty dollars more than you thought you did. And I'm like, really? Are you sure? I don't I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm just taking a look at the time. One thing I did want to kind of uh, go back on a little bit is um because you mentioned the the main reason for this is the low barrier of entry. And low barrier of entry for low resource classrooms, which I think 
is so important. And I think it's something that I know that I don't think of enough when I think of like, you know, we always joke about the price of escape rooms and we always joke about not doing the math because, you know, it's scary. But we don't have to think about the privilege of the fact that we can do that and that it is it, it's not a cheap habit to to have. And so giving people the opportunity to experience these without having to worry about things like financial resources or time resources as much even is so important for getting, getting these games out there. And so I appreciate like the, I, I love that this project is happening is I guess was what, what I want to say. And for any of you that are listening out there, if you know any teachers, point them to escapeif.com. Everything we've talked about is all there. It's all freely available. That will be, so escapeif.com is where I will continue to put the stuff I'm working on with the project. That's sort of my archives. Um, the M Education Alliance website is going to be the overall archive for all the teachers and all the projects and everything. And so we're going to continue to partner with them to connect with these classrooms around the world. And hopefully this is just the start. This this infrastructure is going to enable a building of, I, 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 I'm excited to see stories from other places and to see what people are able to, how they're able to share their stories to see what that turns into. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today and for talking about uh, Escape If. And thank you for providing the link. That was going to be my next question. If anyone wants to uh, find anything else you do, where can they go? So if you're in the social media wilds, I'm at uh, S. Nicholson on Twitter, uh, Facebook at Professor Scott Nicholson. And on that note of Facebook, if you are interested in being involved in Escape If in a deeper way, I have an Escape If community on Facebook. And this is the community where I will put out drafts. I will call for people who might want to play test games. So if you go to Facebook and search on Escape If, you'll find the community there. And you're welcome to join us there if you want to have a deeper engagement uh, with the project. But overall, my general hub is at scottnicholson.com. Great. Well, thank you once again. And I will talk us out. Room Escape Divas is brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other fun podcasts just like this one. You can also email me at roomescapedivas at gmail.com. I love getting emails. Uh, if you are on Facebook, please find the Room Escape Divas Facebook page. Click the like button. We are still having uh, community meetups every Friday at, East, at 6.30 Eastern daylight time now i think we're out of eastern standard time at the moment and uh and if you are using twitter you can use the hashtag redivas thanks everyone bye-bye bye-bye